Chapter Thirty Two of the Old Curiosity Shop. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Old Curiosity Shop by Charles Dickens. Chapter Thirty Two. Mrs. Jarley's wrath on first learning that she had been threatened with the indignity of stocks and penance passed all description. The genuine and only Jarley exposed to public scorn, jeered by children and flouted by beadles. The delight of the nobility and gentry, shown of a bonnet which a lady mayoress might have sighed to wear, and arrayed in a white sheet as a spectacle of mortification and humility. And Miss Monflathers, the audacious creature who presumed, even in the dimmest and remotest distance of her imagination, to conjure up the degrading picture, "'I am a most inclined,' said Mrs. Jarley, bursting with the fullness of her anger and the weakness of her means of revenge, "'to turn atheist when I think of it.' But instead of adopting this course of retaliation, Mrs. Jarley, on second thoughts, brought out the suspicious bottle, and ordering glasses to be set forth upon her favourite drum, and sinking into a chair behind it, called her satellites about her, and to them several times recounted, word for word, the affronts she had received. This done, she begged them in a kind of deep despair to drink, then laughed, then cried, then took a little sip herself, then laughed and cried again, and took a little more. And so, by degrees, the worthy lady went on increasing in smiles and decreasing in tears, until at last she could not laugh enough at Miss Monflathers, who, from being an object of dire vexation, became one of sheer ridicule and absurdity. "'For which of us is best off, I wonder?' quoth Mrs. Jarley. "'She or me? It's only talking when all is said and done, and if she talks of me in the stocks, why, I can talk of her in the stocks, which is a good deal funnier if we come to that. Lord, what does it matter, after all?' Having arrived at this comfortable frame of mind, to which she had been greatly assisted by certain short interjectional remarks of the philosophical George, Mrs. Jarley consoled Nell with many kind words, and requested as a personal favour that whenever she thought of Miss Monflathers, she would do nothing else but laugh at her, all the days of her life. So ended Mrs. Jarley's wrath, which subsided long before the going down of the sun. Nell's anxieties, however, were of a deeper kind, and the checks they imposed upon her cheerfulness were not so easily removed. That evening, as she had dreaded, her grandfather stole away, and did not come back until the night was far spent. Worn out as she was, and fatigued in mind and body, she sat up alone, counting the minutes until he returned, penniless, broken-spirited, and wretched but still hotly bent upon his infatuation. "'Get me money,' he said wildly, as they parted for the night. "'I must have money, Nell. It shall be paid thee back with gallant interest one day, but all the money that comes into thy hands must be mine, not for myself, but to use for thee. Remember, Nell, to use for thee.' What could the child do with the knowledge she had? but give him every penny that came into her hands, lest he should be tempted on to rob their benefactress. If she told the truth, 
so thought the child, he would be treated as a madman. If she did not supply him with money, he would supply himself. Supplying him, she fed the fire that burned him up and put him perhaps beyond recovery. Distracted by these thoughts, borne down by the weight of the sorrow which she dared not tell, tortured by a crowd of apprehensions whenever the old man was absent, and dreading alike his stay and his return, the colour forsook her cheek, her eye grew dim, and her heart was oppressed and heavy. All her old sorrows had come back upon her, augmented by new fears and doubts. By day they were ever present to her mind, by night they hovered round her pillow, and haunted her in dreams. It was natural that, in the midst of her affliction, she should often revert to that sweet young lady of whom she had only caught a hasty glance, but whose sympathy, expressed in one slight brief action, dwelt in her memory like the kindnesses of years. She would often think, if she had such a friend as that to whom to tell her griefs, how much lighter her heart would be, that if she were but free to hear that voice, she would be happier. Then she would wish that she were something better, that she were not quite so poor and humble, that she dared address her without fearing a repulse, and then feel that there was an immeasurable distance between them, and have no hope that the young lady thought of her any more. It was now holiday time at the schools, and the young ladies had gone home, and Miss Monflathers was reported to be flourishing in London, and damaging the hearts of middle-aged gentlemen, but nobody said anything about Miss Edwards, whether she had gone home, or whether she had any home to go, whether she was still at the school, or anything about her. But one evening, as Nell was returning from a lonely walk, she happened to pass the inn where the stage-coaches stopped, just as one drove up, and there was the beautiful girl she so well remembered, pressing forward to embrace a young child whom they were helping down from the roof. Well, this was her sister, her little sister, much younger than Nell, whom she had not seen, so the story went afterwards, for five years, and to bring whom to that place on a short visit she had been saving her poor means all that time. Nell felt as if her heart would break when she saw them meet. They went a little apart from the knot of people who had congregated about the coach, and fell upon each other's neck, and sobbed, and wept with joy. Their plain and simple dress, the distance which the child had come alone, their agitation and delight, and the tears they shed, would have told their history by themselves. They became a little more composed in a short time, and went away, not so much hand in hand as clinging to each other. "'Are you sure you're happy, sister?' said the child as they passed where Nell was standing. "'Quite happy now,' she answered. "'But always?' said the child. "'Ah, sister, why do you turn away your face?' Nell could not help following at a little distance. They went to the house of an old nurse, where the elder sister had engaged a bedroom for the child. "'I shall come to you early every morning,' she said, "'and we can be together all the day. "'Why not at night-time, too? "'Dear sister, would they be angry with you for that?' Why were the eyes of little Nell wet that night, with tears like those of the two sisters? Why did she bear a grateful heart because they had met, and feel it pain to think that they would shortly part? 
let us not believe that any selfish reference unconscious though it might have been to her own trials awoke this sympathy but thank god that the innocent joys of others can strongly move us and that we even in our fallen nature have one source of pure emotion which must be prized in heaven by morning's cheerful glow but oftener still by evening's gentle light the child with a respect for the short and happy intercourse of these two sisters which forbade her to approach and say a thankful word although she yearned to do so followed them at a distance in their walks and rambles stopping when they stopped sitting on the grass when they sat down rising when they went on and feeling it a companionship and delight to be so near them their evening walk was by a river's side here every night the child was too unseen by them unthought of unregarded but feeling as they were her friends as if they had confidences and trusts together as if her load were lightened and less hard to bear as if they mingled their sorrows and found mutual consolation it was a weak fancy perhaps the childish fancy of a young and lonely creature but night after night and still the sisters loitered in the same place and still the child followed with a mild and softened heart she was much startled on returning home one night to find that mrs jarley had commanded an announcement to be prepared to the effect that the stupendous collection would only remain in its present quarters one day longer in fulfilment of which threat for all announcements connected with public amusements are well known to be irrevocable and most exact the stupendous collection shut up next day are we going from this place directly ma'am said nell look here child returned mrs jarley that'll inform you and so saying mrs jarley produced another announcement wherein it was stated that in consequence of the numerous inquiries at the waxwork door and in consequence of crowds having been disappointed in obtaining admission the exhibition would be continued for one week longer and would reopen next day for now that the schools are gone and the regular sightseers exhausted said mrs jarley we come to the general public and they want stimulating upon the following day at noon mrs jarley established herself behind the highly ornamented table attended by the distinguished effigies before mentioned and ordered the doors to be thrown open for the readmission of a discerning and enlightened public but the first day's operations were by no means of a successful character inasmuch as the general public though they manifested a lively interest in mrs jarley personally and such of her waxen satellites as were to be seen for nothing were not affected by any impulses moving them to the payment of sixpence a head thus notwithstanding that a great many people continued to stare at the entry and the figures therein displayed and remained there with great perseverance by the hour at a time to hear the barrel organ played and to read the bills and notwithstanding that they were kind enough to recommend their friends to patronize the exhibition in the like manner until the doorway was regularly blockaded by half the population of the town who when they went off duty were relieved by the other half it was not found that the treasury was any the richer or that the prospects of the establishment were at all encouraging in this depressed state of the classical market 
Mrs. Jarley made extraordinary efforts to stimulate the popular taste and whet the popular curiosity. Certain machinery in the body of the nun on the leads over the door was cleaned up and put in motion so that the figure shook its head paralytically all day long, to the great admiration of a drunken but very protestant barber over the way, who looked upon the said paralytic motion as typical of the degrading effect wrought upon the human mind by the ceremonies of the Romish church, and discoursed upon that theme with great eloquence and morality. The two carters constantly passed in and out of the exhibition room under various disguises, protesting aloud that the sight was better worth the money than anything they had beheld in all their lives, and urging the bystanders with tears in their eyes not to neglect such a brilliant gratification. Mrs. Jarley sat in the pay-place, chinking silver monies from noon till night, and solemnly calling upon the crowd to take notice that the price of admission was only sixpence, and that the departure of the whole collection on a short tour among the crowned heads of Europe was positively fixed for that day week. "'So be in time, be in time, be in time,' said Mrs. Jarley at the close of every such address. "'Remember that this is Jarley's stupendous collection of upwards of one hundred figures, and that it is the only collection in the world.' all others being imposters and deceptions. Be in time, be in time, be in time. End of chapter 32